Right now on Matter of Fact. The American dream went up in smoke. Shining a light on 100 years of anguish. 18 hours of sheer terror. Airplanes are used to drop bombs on American soil, and we were the victims of that. We lost everything that day. Greenwood represented all the best of what was possible for black people in America. Survivors and descendants of the Tulsa race massacre plead to the nation. I am 107 year old and have never been seen justice. I pray that one day I will. The stories of back-to-back -back terror attacks that history denied. Plus, what if we could lead our lives without labels? It's impossible for me to say that I am just a disabled person, or I am just a queer person, or I am just an East Asian person. I am all of those things. And military recruits snapped to attention, ordered to wear their masks. How basic training adapted to a viral enemy, COVID-19. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. It's been 100 years since one of the most significant events in the nation's history and one of its most appalling moments. It was post-war America, two years into Prohibition, audiences filling theaters to see Charlie Chaplin's silent feature film, The Kid, and the first radio broadcast of the World Series. But a series of events in Tulsa, Oklahoma, so shocking and horrific, were not broadcast. They were intentionally covered up. In fact, it's history that is still not taught in many schools. We're talking about the 1921 attack on Greenwood, a thriving business district in Tulsa, known as Black Wall Street. What unfolded at the end of May 1921 nearly destroyed the entire Greenwood area in what became known as the Tulsa Race Massacre. This was for my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother, Mary and Isaac Evett, owners of the Zulu Lounge, 501 East Cameron. It was destroyed in 1921. He was not able to reopen. And this interstate freeway sits upon what should have been, could have been my inheritance. And so I'm deprived of it. Kevin Ross's inheritance was firmly rooted in the thriving community of Greenwood, the Black Wall Street of Tulsa, vibrant and alive with restaurants, theaters, and nightclubs. It was the street that everybody wanted to be on. But that all changed on May 30th, 1921, when news spread that a white teenage elevator operator named Sarah Page accused 19-year-old Dick Rowland, a young black man, of assaulting her. Roland was arrested the next day. That afternoon, an inflammatory report in the Tulsa Tribune set off an armed confrontation outside the courthouse between a white lynch mob and black Greenwood residents there to protect Roland, unleashing the arson, gunfire, and looting that raged into the next day. And then this wasn't just uh, a mob out of control. This wasn't just Dick Roland and Sarah Page, who's confrontation led to the destruction of the Greenwood area. It's because the racial tensions were growing at that time. By June 1st, 36 blocks of Greenwood were flattened, 2,000 homes and businesses destroyed, and several churches consumed by fire, including Vernon AME Chapel, Greenwood's oldest place of worship. It's gonna open up a 
The Reverend Robert Turner has been Vernon's pastor for almost four years. And our membership in our church has seen the worst race massacre in American history. And the survivors of that massacre came back to this church. And our basement surviving the race massacre, it, it carries a weight. It definitely impacts all of what I do as a pastor, as a preacher, you know, as a community activist. Turner's activism includes a weekly pilgrimage to Tulsa City Hall, demanding reparations for the massacre. America needs to repay, repair from all the harm and devastation. Reverend Turner and Kevin Ross both say few Americans know the full story of the massacre. The official death toll reported and repeated for years was 37. 25 black and 12 white. But those fabricated numbers were part of an enormous cover-up. Mass graves, dumped bodies, and hundreds, not dozens, of deaths. All hidden history. When we started talking about the mass graves back in 2018, where white Tulsans came forth and passed down stories that passed down to uh, their descendants, talking about, you know, when they were children, seeing bodies being tossed in these trenches and, and also thrown in the Arkansas River by the truckloads. I thought it were a rumor until I heard it from their mouths. In 2018, the city of Tulsa agreed to investigate the possibility of mass graves, guided by an oversight committee, which Kevin Ross chairs. Last October, the team unearthed 12 coffins in Oaklawn Cemetery, which will be exhumed in June. Nobody knows whether the remains are victims of the massacre, but if they are, Ross hopes to achieve what should have happened a century ago. I'm hope that we can take them out of Oakland and place them somewhere in the historic Greenwood District, because most likely their blood fertilized the grounds right here in Greenwood. So it's our hope that we can make some kind of memorial and final resting place and give them a proper burial site that they should have received 100 years ago. The events of the Tulsa massacre have come to light after decades of efforts to obscure, remove, and obliterate their memory. Now we encourage you to tune in to a History Channel special, Tulsa Burning, the 1921 Race Massacre. The documentary is executive produced by NBA superstar and philanthropist Russell Westbrook. The special calls attention to the lives devastated by the massacre. Tulsa Burning premieres on Sunday, May 30th at 8 p.m. Eastern on the History Channel. Next on Matter of Fact, raised by grandparents who fled a white mob intent on taking their land. And they fled into the swamps and, and uh, hid out in the stump holes. How do we repay families whose wealth was wiped out because of their race? And our viewfinder focuses attention on boot camp in the time of COVID. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. In the years and months leading up to the Tulsa race massacre, a tidal wave of white supremacist attacks 
swept across the United States. Most incidents were left out of high school textbooks. The Red Summer of 1919, as it was called, saw white mobs lay siege to black communities in places like Ellisville, Mississippi, Chicago, Knoxville, and Omaha. Just before the November 1920 presidential election, the Ku Klux Klan held marches in Orlando and Ocoee, Florida, warning black citizens about what could happen if they tried to cast their ballots. Our special correspondent, Joey Chen, has the story of the most violent election day in U.S. history and the generational trauma it left behind. The truth of what happened on that dark night lay hidden in the marshy woods amid family stories and hushed secrets. Well, my name is Robert Lee Hickey. Uh, I am the grandson of John and Lucy Hickey, formerly of Okoy, Florida, prior to November 2nd, 1920, that infamous night of the um, Okoy massacre. Hickey recalls a mostly happy childhood. His mother had gone north for work, leaving him with his grandparents and a simpler life. Our evenings were spent sitting by the fireplace and um, listening to them talk back and forth and eating oranges. Amid the chatter, he heard bits about the family's former home just a few miles away. You know, Coy was a thriving uh, black community in central Florida, uh, very uh, prosperous. Your grandfather was an example of that. Yes, um, my granddad, um, he was a land dealer. He had a tremendous amount of land. You know, that's a threat for some people that, uh, you know. And Doing I, a little too well. Yes, and I think that's what happened. All they needed was some type of a spark, I guess, to set it off. It was a, a piece of dynamite maybe that had been lying there just waiting to be sparked, if you will. Pam Schwartz leads a museum that chronicled that explosion, touched off after a black businessman, Mose Norman, was turned away from the polls. Making good on Klan threats, a white lynch mob soon surrounded the home of July Perry, a black leader known for his support of voting rights. Shots started to ring out and fires started to burn and there was an altercation. And it wasn't just at July Perry's home, it began to spread throughout the community. We will probably never know exactly how many black individuals were murdered. We know at least four, but maybe potentially many more, were murdered. An unknown number of structures was burned. Decades later, Hickey tried to record his grandmother's recollections. Lucy, and you see why She could see people's homes going up and um, in flames. In flames. And so as their flames got closer to them, they fled into the swamps and uh, hid out in the stump holes, she said. The papers told of the two whites killed, barely noting the attacks on black landowners, like Annie Hammeter, who wrote to a friend, one of the most wickedest happenings of a lifetime happened here. All the homes and some of the people were burned. One man was shot and hung, lynched. She says, now we are being threatened and we are being forced out. They say this was a premeditated event to kill and drive out the black people from their homes because they were becoming more prosperous than the white people. After the massacre, black landowners were forced to sell for just pennies on the dollar. The museum tracked property deeds to show the black wealth, along with every one of Ocoee's black residents, wiped out. It happens right at 1920. Yes. 
It happened. Uh, yeah, all at one time. And they disappear. Yes. In a hurry. Like I said, the American dream went up in smoke. Think about 1920 and July Perry and Moses Norman. And what you're doing today is just the next version of that. This has been 100 years, and how is this different from what was happening then? Today, the land alone would be valued at over $10 million. Lawmakers have debated reparations, which descendants believe are long overdue. It is impossible to pay descendants of a whole community what they should be owed. It is not impossible to pay them something. Reparations may not come in this lifetime, but for families who lost so much, there is value in knowing the truth of what happened, that their ancestors built a community, thrived, and that their legacy survives. For Matter of Fact, I'm Joey Chen. Coming up, what do you see when you hear the word disabled? There is no wrong way for bodies to look or move, for brains to work, that none of us are bad or broken or defective. Throughout the month of May, we've been recognizing Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, a celebration that began in 1978 to honor the contributions of Asians and Pacific Islanders. It's a rather broad term and represents only one identity for many people, including Lydia XZ Brown, a disability justice advocate, organizer, educator, attorney, and writer who knows what it's like to be multiply marginalized in America. Every single person inhabits multiple categories of identity and experience. And so for me and for everybody, identity is complex. It's impossible for me to say that I am just a disabled person, or I am just a queer person, or I am just an East Asian person. I am all of those things. I experience marginality in many of the different ways that I move through the world. There are situations where I am a person who is in the room who does have more privilege and who does have more resources because I'm college educated, I'm a lawyer, I'm a light-skinned person of color, and I'm not very obviously physically disabled in any way. A lot of people think that what we should strive for is equality. And on the surface, that makes a lot of sense, right? You're thinking, I want things to be equal. I want people to be treated the same. Isn't that the fairest way to do things? But take it this way, you have a building and there's one entrance, and the entrance to that building is at the top of a flight of stairs. And by the way, this building is also located in the middle of nowhere. So technically, there's equal opportunity. Everybody has an equal chance to enter that building because there's one way that everybody can get in. Just go in the front door. But when you think about it, right, it's not actually equal for everyone because not everybody can use the stairs. And not everybody has transportation to get to the middle of nowhere. And if you really want to pull back on this analogy or this metaphor, right, not everyone probably even knows that this building exists, right? So it is equal, but is it really fair? And that's what's at the core of the conversation. We talk about the difference between equality and equity. Equality is let's treat people all the same. And equity is how can we treat people in a way that is actually fair given the real life conditions that people live through. A lot of people think 
of disabled folks as being somehow separate from our disabilities. Disability justice teaches us that there is no wrong way for bodies to look or move, for brains to work, that none of us are bad or broken or defective. And I think of us as whole people. If you're watching this and you see yourself and you think, wow, that sounds a lot like me. If people don't see you for who you are, if people refuse your humanity or deny your humanity, that's not your fault. You are not broken, you are not less than. You don't have to know all the words to describe all the things that you're feeling, to know that you matter, that you belong, that you deserve to be here, that you deserve everything. You can hear more stories of identity, including those of comedian Gina Brion and Ilyasa Shabazz, the daughter of Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz, at matteroffact.tv. It's part of our Matter of Fact listening tour to be an American, identity, race, and justice. Ahead on Matter of Fact, Second Amendment gun sanctuaries refusing to enforce federal and state gun laws. Is this even legal? We'll tell you about the court taking up that question. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Now to a weekly feature we like to call We're Paying Attention Even If You're Too Busy. Sanctuary cities are nothing new. Most know them as cities that resist enforcement of immigration policy. Well now, an estimated 1,200 local governments have declared themselves Second Amendment sanctuaries. That means they oppose the enforcement of certain federal and state gun laws perceived as violating the Second Amendment. Examples, refusing to enforce red flag laws, universal background checks, and bans on assault-style weapons. The movement spread across the country to states including Virginia, Colorado, New Mexico, Illinois, Florida, and Oregon. So is this even legal? The first court challenge is on the docket in Oregon. A Columbia County judge there will look at a local ordinance that forbids the enforcement of most federal and state gun laws and imposes fines on officials who try. Another legal challenge ahead in Arizona, where the governor signed legislation that prohibits police and sheriffs from enforcing federal gun laws. Next, we go to boot camp for a salute to recruits who took their COVID orders seriously. about following orders. Now, we really hadn't thought about how COVID-19 affected the U.S. military's recruiting and training efforts until we saw some photos in a story about Lackland Air Force Base in Texas. With the help of San Antonio Express News, we take a fresh look at basic training in our viewfinder. Recruits who used to march in formation drills exactly 40 inches apart will now ordered to ROM status, restriction of movement, the traditional haircuts coming to them. The uniforms fitted in place and masks issued black if COVID free, white if testing positive or exposed to the virus. The result, the Air Force training program never shut down and graduated a new squadron every week. The key to success, according to the commanders, recruits follow orders, whether they like them or not. One order not yet issued, getting the vaccine itself, that's still under review. And that's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. We'll see you back here next week.
If you missed our top stories about the hidden history of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, the story behind the deadliest election day in U.S. history, a reflection on identity by disability activist Lydia X.Z. Brown, and a look at gun sanctuary cities and the legal challenges they face, just go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.